Hello, and welcome to my EU policy uh, podcast on financial services. I'm Josina Kameling, Head of Regulatory Outreach for the CFA Institute. And it's my pleasure to discuss in these podcasts many different topics that arise on the EU policy horizon. And of course, one of them is social corporate uh, responsibility within this whole sustainability and EU Green Deal package. Now, when we started looking at sustainability, it was one part of a phrase in the EU Capital Markets Union Action Plan. We fast forward six years down and it has the power to transform, we hope, capital markets, but also companies and the way companies engage with institutional retail investors and um, generally act for the power of good of society, which is what what people are looking to. I would remind you, and I think I have quoted it in another podcast, the Edelman Trust Survey of 2021, which highlights the fact that people trust companies more than they do governments. The democratic accountability of a company has changed, therefore, but is it ready for that? And are we really holding it to account? Some of these questions I hope that will come up in, in my discussion with Simon. Simon Rawson is working for Share Action, which is a UK-based charity that has been for the last 12 years, even before the EMU, CMU Action Plan, building that movement for responsible investment. Simon is leading Share Action's work with companies to drive responsible business practices across the whole of ESG, including climate, food and health and the workforce. He is passionate about the power of good to deliver positive social impact. And that I very much share with you, Simon. And of course, at CFA Institute, where we think that financial services ought to be for the ultimate benefit of society. And that's in our mission statement. Now, in your in your bio, you have, of course, before Share Action, have done quite, quite a lot of things. You led the social responsibility function at McKinsey and & Company. And while there, you also worked with social sector organizations, advising global foundations and nonprofits on strategy, governance, and external relations. You also had a stint at, as a diplomat for the British government, including an overseas posting to Pakistan, and as a private secretary to the Minister for Europe. And I like this. This is interesting, having worked both on the inside of government um, for an NGO and with a consultant. And I think that is is the diversity that brings a renewed look at, at, at what is happening in this world. Now, I mentioned a little bit what Chair Action is doing, but looking to you, Simon, what what is the main um, strategy, main aim of Chair Action? And in which areas are you really doing a deep dive? Thanks very much, Justine, and thanks very much for having me um, join you on your podcast. So Share Action's an NGO. We've been around for about 15 years, and we campaign for responsible investment. More specifically, uh, we want to help transform the investment system so that we can all live within the safe ecological limits of our planet and that we don't undermine the social foundations of our communities. We are UK-based, as you said, but we have an office in Brussels, uh, and obviously the, the the investment system is very much global, and, and, and there are global issues that we care about. And there are really three pillars to the work that we do. I'll just briefly touch on, on each of them. The first is about standards within the financial sector. Um, so we undertake research about the responsible investment practices of large asset managers, asset owners, and other actors such as banks and insurers. And then we use those benchmarks that we've developed to engage with those institutions and and hopefully help them improve the the standards of responsible investment practices. Uh, The second area, very relevant to, to your work, is around regulation and public policy. 
And so we engage in thought leadership and advocacy for regulation that supports sustainable finance in the UK, but in the U in the EU as well and, and, and globally, such as, for example, clarifying and expanding the concept of fiduciary duty um, for investors in the concept of um, responsible investment. And then the, the third area of our work, and, and this is the, the, the chunk of work that I lead for Share Action, is we work collaboratively with investors um, to use the power and influence of ownership of being a shareholder to, to shape business practices of the companies that they invest in. So it's about collaborative corporate engagement. And we have investor coalitions uh, that are currently working on decarbonizing heavy industry, on tackling the role of food retailers and manufacturers in the obesity crisis, and on improving the level of living wages um, and quality of work that major employers provide. And those are just three examples. And, and Share Action's role in that is to provide investor relevant research and then support escalating engagement to drive responsible business practices at those companies and more broadly across sectors. I think, you know, you, uh, Share Action has a very important role. I think we all agree that increased stakeholder engagement needs to clarify the way this engagement works and any help that can be given on that is, is very important. We all struggle with the enormous amounts of data. The companies struggle with data they have to provide and to make it intelligible for the for the investor. And the investors are struggling, quite frankly, with you know not knowing where to give head to all this data that is being flashed at them. Um, now, the pandemic has increased the challenge of this collaborative dialogue and engagement. What, what have the challenges been for the annual general meeting, which has, has to be online? We've seen um, various criticisms that um, questions are not being acknowledged, that engagement has been reduced. Um, we see um, that uh, topics are avoided. Uh, accountability is, is also more difficult. Um, and there has been a lot of academic discussion around whether there should be one AGM or there should be several mini ones preparing a big AGM. And do you think that this virtual AGM world is going to continue for the foreseeable future? Or what, what is your experience there, Simon? Well, we attend a lot of AGMs um, at Share Action, and 2020 was, of course, a year like no other. And the, the, the pandemic hit Europe just as we were heading into the peak of AGM season. So um, in, in that respect, it couldn't have come at a more difficult time for companies. They found themselves scrambling to work out how they could ensure that they could lawfully conduct the important business of their AGM. And, and governments, for their part, were moving to bring in emergency rules, um, which, which allowed companies to do this in a way that didn't breach social distancing rules that they had had to bring in as well. And, and we saw different companies in different jurisdictions respond differently. Um, in the UK, unfortunately, the default option for most companies, including more than two thirds of uh, FTSE 100 companies, was that they held their 2020 AGMs behind closed doors. So that, that means just a minimum quorum present. And typically that's, you know, the chairman and the company secretary and all voting taking place, you know, prior to the meeting. But of course, AGMs are not just about the legal business of the company. You referred in your introduction to the role that companies are now playing um, as their greater trust in companies than, than in governments uh, and the importance of, of democracy. Um, companies need to be held to account 
too. And annual general meetings provide a unique opportunity for shareholders to engage directly with the boards of those companies, to hold the microphone and to ask important questions uh, and even have direct conversations with uh, directors in the margins of the meetings. So you can see how they can be a really important tool for shaping the responsible business practices and advancing a company's environmental um, and social impacts. Um, and in 2020, that democratic space um, all but disappeared overnight. Um, some companies tried to provide alternative mechanisms in 2020. For example, they held sort of shareholder webinars separately from their AGM. And as you mentioned, some companies allowed shareholders to ask questions by email, but none of these quite deliver the accountability of the in-person AGM. And as you said, we saw email questions either being unanswered or being grouped or very uh, superficial answers being given. Uh, so uh, far from uh, satisfactory in, in, in our view. But hey, 2020 was an exceptional year for companies and for everybody. And we respect that everybody was responding to unprecedented circumstances. But fast forward 12 months, and where are we now? Well, many countries and companies are finding that it's still not safe to hold uh, in-person meetings because of the pandemic. But what I can say is that many regulators and companies have responded to the calls that we and others uh, have been making to ensure that virtual AGMs uh, learn the lessons of last year and adopt some, some, some basic best practices. And to be clear, the vast majority of AGMs are still not accessible in person, as I'm saying, and so we would not call them hybrid AGMs, we would call them virtual AGMs, and a hybrid AGM only being when, when there can be at least some element of uh, meaningful in-person participation. But what are the best practices for virtual AGMs? Well, um, as a very basic minimum, they include making sure that all shareholders, however they hold their shares, whether directly or via a nominee, can easily access the virtual AGM. It sounds like a no-brainer, but in practice, it is remarkably difficult uh, to get uh, access codes for virtual <laughs> AGMs, particularly if you're not, you know, you're, you're not a named shareholder on the register um, for whatever reason. Um, and then the other, the other consideration, as you mentioned, is about the question and answer session. And we really think that companies should be doing all they can to allow shareholders to ask questions live because grouped, curated and edited questions are just not, uh, not, not equivalent. We also think it's important that the board is visible, ideally on video where possible. And ideally, that's the full board, including non-execs, uh, given the really important role that they play in, in corporate governance. And as I said, it's, it's good to see that some companies are starting to adopt these best practices. For example, just this week, I attended the AGM of uh, UK food retailer, well, high street retailer Marks and Spencers, uh, and they ran, they ran a virtual AGM that did many of these things. So they went even so far as to have a business journalist uh, acting as a shareholder advocate in the room. And he was taking the questions that were coming in live on the, uh, the, the virtual platform and then asking them and probing the chairman uh, and chief executive who were there in person in the meeting. Still not quite the same as an in-person meeting, but I have to give them credit for giving a good try to trying to make it as equivalent as possible. And, and it's going to be really important to get this right, Chisina, because according to the, the latest data that I've seen, at least a third of companies are bringing in changes to their articles, which will permit virtual AGMs in the future. So it's critical that we get this right. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned the challenge and you mentioned also this innovation at Marks and Spencer's, which is really fascinating to see how com- companies are responding. Now, of course, uh, boards have a new challenge and board accountability is, is, is coming to the fore again, as you know, we thought that we had discussed this fully, but we see that uh, both the whole sustainable agenda as well as the virtual world through the pandemic have created quite a few new challenges for, for boards. Now, of course, uh, boards need to uh, look at other stakeholders. They look at at also at employees. Um, Better Finance uh, Financial Users Group is very insistent on employee participation, which, of course, employee participation in equity in the company, but also looking at the strategy of the company involving. uh, That is better governance, quite frankly. What are you seeing on that? I've I've seen quite a bit of research coming out of some UK uh, universities like Sheffield, um, but also Cambridge and others really looking at this whole new corporate governance where companies really have to focus on this new world and that board accountability is so key. Yeah, there's a, I mean, a growing consensus that the the sort of form of untamed capitalism that we've seen over the past few decades is no longer fit for purpose. Whether it's the, um, you know, the events that led up to the uh, insurrection at the Capitol in DC uh, in January this year, which which I believe you can, you know, draw a link all the way back to, you know, short termism in the financial markets, leading to, you know, low wages, growing income inequality, political polarization, and ultimately sort of insecurity in our societies, or or whether it is um, the, you know, now universally accepted climate and biodiversity crisis that, that we all face. The, the, the challenge is that we've had a distorted understanding of the concept of shareholder primacy um, and the prevailing doctrine that the fiduciary duty of boards and, and indeed the fiduciary duty of investors has been to focus on short-term shareholder returns and, and a sense that they, they, you know, they cannot take into account other considerations uh, such as those that might be raised by stakeholders, whether they're workers, suppliers, communities or, or others who have an interest in the environment, for example. Um, but, but as we see it, there's no conflict between shareholder primacy and the sustainable and responsible governance of a company, um, because in the long term, the interests of stakeholders and shareholders coincide. And, and I personally would argue that directors very much have the flexibility to do this already. And certainly in the jurisdictions that I'm most familiar with, such as the UK's Companies Act, it explicitly talks about having regard to long-term impacts, to employees' interests, to suppliers, to communities, to the environment. And, and there are those who would argue that this doesn't go far enough. And we've seen the business roundtable in the US of all groups talking about uh, stakeholder capitalism and the groups in the UK looking at a better business act. And, and it's, of course, very much part of the focus of the EU's sustainable governance initiative and has even given rise to, to you know, to renewed thinking about new legal forms for businesses such as B Corps and Entreprise Mission and public benefit corporations in the US. And, and the message I would send to, to fiduciary investors and to corporate boards is that there is already a lot of evidence um, of the positive impact on business and returns on investment uh, when businesses listen to stakeholders and address their interests. And, and indeed, as you said, employee ownership also, there's, a, there's an equivalent body of evidence that suggests that that has a positive return for business and for investors. Um, and at the end of the day, when, when we have the climate crisis upon us and the social foundation of our society being undermined as it is, we, we, we can't afford to wait uh, for those legal constructs uh, and, and, and sort of reform of corporate structures to come in. I, I'd say that it's very much something boards can be addressing 
today and that investors should be thinking about in the way that they engage with those boards? I think, I think, you know, there is a lot of regulation out there. And if, if you look at the details of the regulation, um, if you really look, look at that, then, you know, I'm sure, as you say, a lot can be done already today. Um, but I think um, people uh, were sort of relaxed, perhaps too relaxed, and, and not really thinking enough about that they have a responsibility to that outside world. And I think that that is, is coming upon them. And I think, you know, everybody is looking far more into the future now. I mean, regulators were always more backward looking uh, than forward looking. If you used to come with some innovative ideas to a regulator, they would say, oh, this is blue sky thinking, uh, which has happened to me quite frequently. You at Share Action, you, you've, you've been looking into the future of, of AGMs. We did talk a little bit about it in, in, in one of my first questions, but I want you to lig- dig a little bit into that research you did, how how really we think we, these AGMs are going to evolve as all this dialogue is increasing. Are we, are we going to include um, different, for example, stakeholder groups in prepping up that AGM and then coming with conclusions? Because it's almost impossible to look at all the topics um, correctly in one AGM. So how, what, what are the results that you see at Share Action on some of these thoughts? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And, and certainly, you know, what I spoke about before in terms of virtual AGMs were very much about be- best practices within what, what we might call business as usual approaches to, to AGMs. But actually, prompted by the disruption to AGMs last year, as you say, we undertook a, a research project and looking at the future of the AGM. And we involved companies and investors and lawyers and academics, and we encouraged them to reimagine the AGM for the future in precisely in um, the the paradigm of stakeholder capitalism that we've just been talking about. And I suppose there were a few things, a few ideas that we came up with, which we offer up to to companies and, uh, and to regulators to think about for AGMs of the future. The first is Absolutely, stakeholders, not just shareholders, should be given access to AGMs. And there's a huge amount of value in inviting uh, those stakeholders into the AGMs because the reality is that the the, the varying stakeholder perspectives um, create tensions and trade-offs that need to be considered and addressed. And the AGM gives you a forum to to express and articulate and be heard, but also to listen uh, to other stakeholders and their interests. And no one is denying that the board uh, of board of directors, you know, in in taking into account stakeholder con- you know considerations, has a tricky job and 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 has to 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 make trade offs and balances. And they absolutely do, and we recognise that. But we think that an AGM that is inclusive of stakeholders is a fantastic tool and enables the boards to do that. So we would be very keen to see stakeholders, representatives of employees, of suppliers, of communities, or of, 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 of the environment even, to be involved in, in that process. And I would go further and make the point that uh, institutional investors have an interest in attending AGMs. And it has always struck us of the irony that the biggest shareholders never attend AGMs. And we... We, we frankly don't understand it and think that especially in a day and age where you can attend an AGM from your 
from your front room, from your kitchen, from wherever, wherever you are working from home. And you, you no longer have to take an afternoon out of the office to, to attend an AGM. You can be in and out within an hour um, and listening and hearing the discussion that's going on and, and critically hearing what other stakeholders are asking and how companies are responding to those stakeholder interests. That's a critical insight for corporate governance perspective. So stakeholders should be present. Inst big institutional investors should be present and using the tool. Um, other things that we came up with during the during that, that little research project, as as you said, there's an argument that um, you know a one-time AGM is not sufficient, and that actually stakeholder engagement is something that should happen throughout the year. I think you know potentially you potentially lose the lose part of the power of the AGM if you diffuse it throughout the year and lose the focus of it. The AGM for us remains a critical sort of climax of that conversation, an inclusive conversation with all stakeholders. But we'd absolutely encourage companies to engage with stakeholders, shareholders, all shareholders throughout the years. And indeed, many already are. They're often doing it in isolation, so speaking to one group of stakeholders here and one group of stakeholders yeah. there, and we do think there's more that they could do to bring people together. So I certainly wouldn't stand in the way of companies bringing broader stakeholder conversations together throughout the year, but at the same time wouldn't want to lose the uh, the sort of the, the sense of importance and gravity uh, that and significance that the AGM event itself has, but very much think that that should be a um, a, a stakeholder-led meeting uh, rather than uh, just for uh, shareholders. Yeah, and I think that that's just continuing engagement that is important. Simon, lastly, in in maybe in a, in a short synopsis, we've had the Shareholders' Rights Directive, which um, was bringing supposedly or has brought uh, improvements for shareholders. But there's, of course, we, we are looking now at the Sustainable Corporate Governance uh, legislative proposal. Do you think uh, that uh, there is enough in all of this, in this pipeline and what is already existing at the EU to bring really true engagement and also help that foment that European EU market, which is something that the EU has struggled with? Or do you think things are still missing? I will say, I think there's a lot still missing, but I think there's a real opportunity that the EU has to um, to strengthen um, what is important principles that were established in, in, in the Shareholder Rights Directive. But, but really, for us, uh, the, the, the Shareholder Rights Directive is about stewardship, and, and we think the EU should be putting sustainability um, at the centre of SRD2 in order to embed sustainability in stewardship. And, and frankly, uh, a definition of stewardship that clearly links uh, investors' engagement activities with companies' uh, sustainability impact. And I think it should clarify that investors have a responsibility to hold companies accountable for their impact on communities and on the environment. And I think it should also focus on the effectiveness of stewardship, not just on disclosure itself. So those are certainly two dimensions in which we'd be keen to see it go further. I mean, other specifics... Um, I'd love to see tighter rules on disclosure of a shareholder voting. Uh, we certainly think that investors should be required to explain how their voting policies are aligned with the best interests of beneficiaries. Voting is such a, an essential component of effective stewardship, but, but most investors are not currently voting 
uh, at many companies. And when they do, they vote for a limited number of resolutions and, and they're, they're delivering, you know, subpar levels of basic stewardship. So better voting disclosure would allow institutional investors, beneficiaries, consumer groups to, to conduct meaningful comparisons of voting patterns amongst asset managers, asking for justifications and holding asset managers accountable where necessary. And, and finally, I suppose the final point I'd make is that there, there needs to be something that addresses non-compliance of the rules that it seeks to enforce, because uh, at the moment we have a sort of comply or explain approach, which is really not sufficient. Uh, we need to mandate requirements in, in, in a sort of renewed directive, and because at the moment it does little to, to improve the sort of consistency and comparability of reporting across the investment sector. So that's certainly something that we would we would like to see. And yeah, perhaps if I can throw in one last one last ask on my wish list is that I'd love to see it expand beyond just equities into other class asset classes, you know, fixed income at a sort of minimum, but I think it could go a lot further too. Thank you. And I think at CFA Institute, we, we had a wish list too. We had in our um, ESG disclosures and corporate governance um, paper for in the EU, which we came out with in January of this year. Uh, what we suggested, and I, I'll link into you, is, is that we thought the European Commission should be much more active in monitoring mechanisms, building monitoring mechanisms across member states, because uh, corporate governance is a national issue still very much in the EU. And so even though there is legislation coming at the EU level, it still is very national. So building strong monitoring mechanisms may, may help this. Simon, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. We could have gone on more, but as always, we need to finish in time for, for uh, this podcast. Uh, thank you for those of us that are listening. This is um, really, I've done quite a few on corporate governance recently, and probably there will be some more coming because it is a key topic at the moment in EU financial services policy. Simon, thank you very much. Thanks, Justina.